Welcome to the Bookwifery Podcast, a weekly podcast that helps you birth your book, your voice, and your audience through discernment, companionship, and guidance. I'm Christiane Squires, the founder of Bookwifery, and my mission is to help you birth books that heal the world with light. Welcome to the show. Hey friends, just jumping in here quickly before to the start of the episode to let you know that I am celebrating the launch of the Bookwifery podcast in a really special way, and I hope you'll join me. In fact, I can't do it without you, so I hope you'll choose to participate. This show is launching with four foundational episodes, episode zero and episodes one through three. These four episodes are really important to help you kind of situate yourself within the landscape of book publishing and your own personal um, potential for book pregnancy in order to know how to move forward. What I'd love is for you to share with me after you listen to these first four episodes, what it is that you learned is true for you about your book pregnancy. I'm going to gather up all the responses I received to that question and do a super special episode of the Bookwifery podcast that allows me to read what people shared they learned was true for them about their book pregnancy and then offer a personal response to each one of you. I'm super excited about this. I love the chance for some sense of community that it will provide right here at the beginning and also just the chance to learn like what is the discernment that's happening? What is the learning that's happening about what's true for you in this process? If you'd like to participate, I'm going to ask that you do so by June 30th, 2018, and you can submit your response to me in one of two ways, either on Instagram at Christiane underscore bookwifery or by email at Christiane at bookwifery.com. Those details are also available to you in the show notes for any of the foundational four episodes. If you go to bookwifery.com slash podcasts, navigate to episode zero, one, two, or three, you'll find details on how to submit your response there too. So I hope you'll participate and join with me in celebrating this really fun launch of this new podcast. Thanks so much. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Book With Free podcast. Today we're going to talk about the four key factors to consider before birthing a book. And I want to say that when I talk about these four key factors, I am again talking exclusively to authors of general nonfiction. Back in episode one of this podcast, I talked about the three different categories of books, of book publishing, fiction, creative nonfiction, and general nonfiction. And I mentioned, or I, I talked about in that episode about about the work I do here at Bookwifery being exclusively for authors who are working in the general nonfiction category. So if you want to, if you're just tuning in now to the podcast and want to clarify which particular category you are working in, um, fiction, creative nonfiction, or general nonfiction, and the difference between them, I encourage you to go back to podcast episode one. You can find that if you go to bookwifery.com slash podcast, all of the episodes are laid out there. Just make your way to episode one and you you can find um, more information about the difference between those three categories. But in this podcast as a whole, not just in this episode, but in every episode, I'm looking to accompany those who are working in the category of general nonfiction. So the four key factors we're going to talk about today are specific to that category of book publishing. Um, the requirements for publishing fiction or creative nonfiction are a little bit different. Um, 
related to some of the things I'm going to mention today. So I just want you to be aware about that um, right here at the start. So diving in, we're going to talk about these four key factors that I want you to consider um, in your discernment process, or I'm inviting you to consider to kind of fold into your discernment process before you move forward on the path to birthing a book. In episode two of the podcast, I gave you nine questions that will help you in kind of a more formal discernment, you know, exercise around whether you are indeed pregnant with a book. So I consider this episode to be kind of the second part of that of that episode number two, which was about the nine questions you can ask yourself to discern whether you're pregnant with a book. So I talked in that episode about how you know, there's personal discernment that we do to kind of evaluate our life and our circumstances and kind of what's happening and circling around our life. And is there a real personal invitation into this path of book pregnancy? Um, But I also mentioned that um, the reality of discernment is that there's not just the personal factors, there's the actual concrete data that exists outside of our personal lived experience that is also helpful to bring into our discernment process. So I call it data gathering um, or filling up your knowledge bank about specific um, information, data that is helpful to you to know as you move forward in the question of book pregnancy. So that's what this episode is. Like I said, it's considered kind of the second part of your discernment process to that previous episode. Um, And I'm going to just kind of give you some good information that is, is helpful for you to know about the experience of book pregnancy, book birthing. Um, Ultimately, it's, it's, it's the path of book publishing. What do you need to know kind of outside of yourself and your own personal experience and readiness to start birthing a book in order Order to move forward along this path in a way that um, actually makes the pregnancy viable. Um, and so let's that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so factor number one is time. So I just want to give you some reality around the question of time when it comes to publishing a book. It always takes much longer um, for big projects to come to life than we usually expect them to, and book publishing is certainly no exception to that. Um, So I just want to name right here at the start the significant investment of time that this endeavor will require of you. Um, There's the actual writing of the manuscript, which usually averages 60 to 80,000 words. Um, Writing just the first draft of that is going to take probably a minimum of six months. Some people can kind of hole away in their, you know, in a cabin in the woods or just have um, a lot more space in their life to maybe get something like that done more quickly. But I would say a good solid first draft for most people will take a minimum of six months to to generate. Um, But then after the writing, there is, there are additional things you, you would want to go back and revise that first draft. Um, If you are hiring an editor yourself, um, you would be working on revisions with that person. Um, But then there's this, um, there's these additional factors to the book book publishing landscape. So if you're going the traditional route of publishing, um, you won't have to write your full first draft uh, in one solid go. You would you would put together a book proposal package. And at some point on the podcast, a little bit further down the line, I'll talk about kind of all the elements that go into a book proposal package. But that piece of the process is another kind of requirement of time. You'll need to take time to 
write your sample chapters, put together all the elements of the actual book proposal, write a query letter, find out who you will want to actually query, whether it's agents or publishers. Um, you, you know, once you send that package out into the into the world, you know, targeting certain um, individuals or entities that you hope will want to partner with you in your book, um, you then have kind of a waiting game that you're playing. You're waiting to hear back whether they're interested. And if they are interested <clears throat> and the book gets to go to contract, which is super exciting. There's there's a, there's a time lag there too, where the contract is being drawn up and then it's sent over to you, and there might be a negotiation process. And then there will be a deadline given to you to finish the manuscript. So you'll invest some time there on finishing the actual um, draft. And uh, again, if you're working with a private editor that you've hired to help you make that draft as solid as it can be, that's that's a revision process. And then you go into production with your publishing house. So they have their whole process of editorial review and revision work and then going into copy editing and design and proofreading and um all of the things that are happening inside the publishing house that bring a book to life as well, their whole team um, in all the different departments. And then there's the publishing time or the printing time that's required and the distribution time to get the books to the bookstores. And all of that is to say that it can easily take uh, usually 18 months to two years um, to actually from conception to beginning to work on the book and actually bringing the book to life. So I just want to paint that picture for you, that time um, is going to be a factor here, that if you step forward in book pregnancy, this is something that you are committing to do for the next several years of your life. And that's really exciting. There's so much that happens during that time. Um, but it's just something to know, obviously, can your life make room for this big initiative? And um you know, I think that the fact that we, you know, that life is busy, there's so much going on is just a reality for most of us these days. And when I've run my, um, discernment workshops in the past, I have sometimes, you know, started those workshops by asking people, kind of polling people that are coming to the workshop, you know, what is one of your main concerns right now about book pregnancy and the, the concern about time always is one of the popular responses, you know, do I have time for what this will require? So I think that the reality of busyness and being overextended and involved in so many different things is just a reality. Um, But I I just want to say that, you know, if you are noticing an invitation to book pregnancy, um, consider again, the reality that we talked about in episode number two on discernment, excuse me, that um, you're not the only one here in holding this question that there is this entity other than you, which I would name as God or the divine or the sacred, that is inviting you into this. And if that invitation is really happening in your life, that you, um, I hope, will feel like you can trust that the question of time is something that you can now work with. Um, I referred to it in that episode as something kind of work outable. <clears throat> I have something caught in my throat today. Sorry about that. Um, kind of a work outable, something that you can work with and see how how it can become a reality, how it can become possible or plausible in your life. Um, and so when you hold this question of time as you are exploring the possibility of book pregnancy, um, I want to invite you into a couple different thought 
experiments. Um, One is to consider how you usually decide what gets your time. And I mean that in a real way. I mean, that's just a generic question in and of itself. But I really want to invite you to maybe even pause this podcast and ask yourself, um, how do I make decisions about what gets my time? Like what, and maybe even kind of stepping back from that, what things are getting my time right now? Um, family commitments, work commitments, social commitments, volunteer commitments, um, rest, um, relaxation. What are all the different things that are getting your time right now, just at this moment in your life? And then maybe do some reflection on how did I decide how those things would take up room in my life. Um, Some of them are just a given, you know, our family commitments and our work commitments are kind of maybe um, already there because that just is the reality and the necessity of life. You know, you need to work certain hours for an employer. Um, Your family requires your presence um, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, um, getting, you know, children to their commitments and school and all of that. Some of those things just by nature are just there. Um, But even within some of those things, um, what commitments your family has made to um, civic organizations, sports, sporting events, um, church life, things like that. How have you all decided what things will get your time for those things? And then there's all these other extra things that are going on in your life, your relationships outside of your family, like friendships, um, uh, mentoring relationships, um, things you do for fun, hobbies, clubs, things that you might be involved in. So just looking kind of holistically at what you're involved in and then doing a review of how did you decide how those things began to take up space in your life? Like what made you decide that those were important to do and said yes to? And, um, and then I also want to kind of push this thought exercise a little bit further and say, um, pick one of, pick, look at, as you're reviewing each of those things that are in your life, um, what was the most recent thing you committed to that you folded into your life? Maybe it was a decision decision to join a small group or to add a recurring coffee date to your life with a friend or a phone date with a friend who lives far away. Um, was it a new job that, that took up space in your life? Some, what is the most recent new thing that you added to your plate? And how did that decision come about? And what did you need to do to make room in your life for that thing. So um, an example I like to use with um, from my life is a decision my husband and I made recently in the recent past to join a prayer group that was being offered at a local church. Um, we were looking for something. The reason that we decided to fold it in was we were looking for something that we could do together that would nurture our spiritual life and would offer kind of a kind of a regular process for us to be connected to. It was it was like intentional. There was a specific pathway that that group was doing something together. It wasn't just like, um, you know, we show up every week and we just see what happens. It was like, no, we, we show up every week and we do these specific things together. And then throughout the week when we're apart, we're also doing these other practices. And then we're coming back together to explore what happened in the previous week. So 
we were looking for something like that in our life to do together and to just nurture our spiritual life personally. And so we had to then figure out like, how are we going to make this work if we commit to this? So it was a desire, a shared desire. And then it was a conversation about, okay, if this is on Monday nights and it's two hours and it takes a half hour to get there and a half hour to get home, it's really a three hour commitment. How are we going to handle dinner that night? You know, getting from work to dinner to the group Uh, getting home close to 10 p.m., like all of these, you know, how does that going to affect our going to sleep time? You know, all of that um, was a process of like, okay, we're going to commit to this and we're going to fold it into our life. And this is what the impact of that will be. And we're, we're saying yes to it. And so I'm inviting you to just review all of these things because I want you to notice how you tend to go about making room for things in your life and how intentional are you about it? Um, What are some of the impacts that you have to consider when you fold something new into your life? And obviously the connection here is if you are making a several years long commitment to birthing a book, um, what else, how will that impact the things that are going on in your life now? Um, What kinds of things are going on now that might need to shift or um, get less time or get taken off your plate altogether? Is that possible for you right now? Um, how even are you responding to this po- these questions as a possibility? That is helpful in your discernment as well. Like, okay, as I'm even entering into the holding of these questions that Christiane is posing to me, how am I responding to this? Am I starting to get really tight in the chest or in the shoulders? Am I starting to feel really nervous? Um, Am I starting to feel like this just isn't gonna be worth it? Like, I just don't want to, I don't want the change that this would require. And that is just really good data, you know? Um, And so it's not about asking you to force this into your life. It's about continuing to weigh the reality of book pregnancy and whether it's a true invitation for you. And so if you're starting to respond in a way that says like, I don't feel like this is something I could actually do now that I think about the reality of it, um, then that can be part of your discernment to say, okay, maybe I'm not being invited to birth a book at this time. Um, But if you're, you know, hanging with these questions and you're getting it and you're like, okay, I get that this is going to be a long-term commitment and I'm going to have to involve significant people in my life in the decision and we're going to have to figure it out and there's things in my life I know are going to have to change and I'm feeling like that is a true reality and I can hang with that, um, then I'd say, great, in your discernment, you're feeling a continued openness and a continued kind of posture of exploration. So all of that being said, um, I also want to tag on here at the end of this time component, this time factor, um, just the invitation to consider working within your circumstances. There's such a, you know, this idyllic or idealized romantic picture we so many of us have in our minds of like of going to that cabin in the woods for three months and just writing and like how how fantastic would that be I mean really it, it would be fantastic um, but it's just not a realistic for so many of us and so as you're considering the bringing the folding in of this um, this initiative into your life, um, what kinds of things could that look like for you? And so I'm just going to give you a couple practical examples from people that I've worked with to share, you know, what this, what kinds of things you might consider 
doing to allow yourself to have room for this in your actual daily life. Um, and so I have one author who decided to hire childcare two mornings a week so that she could get three hours two mornings a week to work on her book. And that was her writing time. And her family, she and her husband decided that their budget would make room for that, for them to hire that extra help and allow her to dedicate those time, those hours. Um, Another author I'm working with, um, she kind of blocks out her Saturdays every week. She takes a half day and she just reviews. She's in one of my courses right now. She she reviews the lessons from the week. She actually spends time on them during that Saturday block because she's found that during the week, she's involved in so many other things professionally that and personally that she can't really take time on like a daily basis to work through the material that she needs to get done for the courses, but she can block out a whole solid Saturday to do it. And so that's how she's making room for it in her life. Um, Another author I worked with, I love this story. She has a very busy home life. Uh, People are coming in and out of her home all the time. They've got a very active dog. Um, There's always a lot of tending to the home that needs to happen because of the amount of people that kind of flow in and out of their home life. And so she decided, well, she recognized early on that she was never going to probably get even a whole afternoon or um, much less a whole Saturday to, to really like block out to work on her book. And so she decided, to train herself to work on the book in the midst of the chaos. And so she consciously would go down to the very center of their home in the kitchen table where activity central and she would set up her laptop and she would put her earbuds in and she would work whether it was for 10 minutes at a time 20 minutes at a time sometimes she could get in an hour or two and she just decided like this is how I'm gonna have to get this book done because this is the reality of my life and the invitation to birth a book is real. It's it's live. It's 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 happening inside of me. I can't ignore it any longer. But my life won't allow for a lot for much else, you know, in terms of room. And so I'm just going to have to learn how to do this alongside what's happening. So share those as some examples to help kind of prime the pump for you creatively in your you know imagination of what this could possibly look like for you. Okay, we're moving on to factor number two. Factor number two is the reality of platform. So I talked about this a bit in the second podcast episode about discernment. We covered this a little bit, touched on it, and I want to go a little bit deeper into that today. The um, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that the factors that are live for fiction and creative nonfiction are slightly different than what we do here at Bookwifery in general nonfiction. And this is where you see that probably the most um, in the question of platform. So the question of platform looks really Really different for people who are novelists or writing memoir, creative nonfiction. It's it's a little bit less of a requirement. Not that it's not a requirement at all, but it's a little bit less of an important factor in, to consider than the category of general nonfiction. General nonfiction are, as I've defined it, books that set out to help people in some direct way, and so. It's not about like captivating people with a story, uh, which is what fiction and creative nonfiction are, are usually kind of poised to do, where people are going to read a good story that they find and they don't need to even know whether the author who wrote it has some kind of major platform in order to write a re- really compelling story. But for general nonfiction, where these are books that are going to help you in some direct way, um, the platform question is a must. And I, I want to say here that... When I use the word platform, I I actually use it kind of in a couple different ways. So 
One way that you can think about platform is to say that you have um, been given the trust of other people as an authority on your subject matter. So you are literally given a platform from which to speak about the subject that you are an authority on. So whether that is you are um, teaching in a classroom, you are speaking from a stage to conferences, you are speaking from a pulpit as a pastor, um, there are ways in which uh, you, you are given kind of a regular column in an online media outlet or a print magazine or something. These are literal platforms, like people are asking you to be in front of them, to teach them, to help them, to guide them, to give them direction or, um, yeah, to spark their 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 growth. And so that's one way in which we talk about platform that you have been entrusted with a space from which to speak or write or all these other things. Another way that we think about platform is um the 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 spaces that you choose to inhabit yourself and the ways in which you are communicating with an audience that is kind of coming to you and your kind of home base or multiple like multiple bases <laughs> to um, connect with you, learn from you, um, be in relationship with you. Um, and this is where, you know, you are, you are doing things on your own, not just in places where other people have asked you to show up, but you are doing things yourself to cultivate an audience. Um, that is another way that, that we can, you can demonstrate a viable platform is I have done these things, whether it's on Instagram or a blog or a podcast or Facebook ways or Twitter, you YouTube, all these different things that, you know, I've done the, I show up in these places of my own accord and I seek to offer value and other people, um, come meet me there and they engage and they, they are receiving value. And this, this following that I have in these different places is a demonstration of the truth of that. And so, um, so when it comes to general nonfiction and book publishing, those two notions of platform are legitimate. So, um, and what I want to get here with that, get at here with that (laughs) is this, um, this reality that your platform can be based in the online or the offline space. Um, a lot of times when new fledgling authors hear the word platform, they immediately think of, you know, I don't have I don't do a lot on social media. I don't have a website. I don't, you know, know anything about blogging. I don't know how to use Facebook really well. And so they go immediately to that place of like, I don't have a platform and that can become overwhelming and frightening and maybe kind of shut them down. And maybe, you know, you have experienced that yourself for yourself when you've thought about it. But I want to encourage you to say that platform can be, is broader than that. It also includes offline spaces where you have been entrusted to, connect with other people in your area of expertise. I worked with an author last year who hasn't done, hadn't uh, done very much intentionally online. She had maybe just started a website and blog at the very end of our working relationship on her book, but she was able to secure a book contract with a publisher based on the very good work she had been doing in offline spaces. She was she had a really great connection to a wide-reaching um, nonprofit organization, a worldwide nonprofit or- organization. She she was helping kind of one of the one of the demographics for that organization. She was given a lot of leadership opportunity to help cultivate um 
She's led workshops. She's connected to a lot of different influential people in her community based on the work that she and her husband do in their community. And so she has all of these opportunities to connect with people and organizations that that know her, that trust her, that give her um, you know opportunities. And when it comes to helping a publisher know that that she has a legitimate platform, even though she didn't have a lot going on online, she was able to show, I have all these relationships. I have all of this opportunity. I really have demonstrated authority in my subject matter. Um, and these are the opportunities that could be available, um, for a book to come to life and, and find an audience in, in light of my offline platform. So I just want to share that with you to kind of open up your mind beyond maybe what, what I have found is kind of the go-to place in our heads when we hear the word platform is like, oh, I need to have a website and oh, I need to have a blog and I need to do something on Facebook. (laughs) And if you haven't done those things, it can feel like, oh, then I'm not worthy enough. But I find that people who come to the general nonfiction category, usually are coming to it and discerning their way forward into the, yes, I am pregnant with a book because of the work they have already been doing in their life. A lot of times in offline spaces, you know, teaching opportunities, leadership opportunities, um, education they've received, ways that they might be doing writing in other places, even print magazines or journals. Um, And just to know that that is legitimate platform you know, grist that you can build upon. Um, I will say, though, that the online space is certainly, it's not something to ignore. It's not something that doesn't matter. It it matters very much. Um, And I want to share that, like, there's so much potential in the online space for you to start to make some inroads. Um, There's some different reasons for this. Number one, like online, the online space is more leveraged than the offline space. When you are connecting with your audience online, you're just able to do it more frequently, right? You can show up daily to share posts and, you know, ideas and photographs, things like that in a way that the offline space is more bound by place and time. Um, so then there's also that that place piece of it where, you know, the online space is, doesn't know any boundaries in terms of place. Like you can connect with someone on the other side of the world and it's, it's like no issue there. But if, you know, the offline places require people to show up physically in a particular location at a particular time. And so I love the, like I said, the leverage that an online experience offers to your audience to connect with you more frequently than they can in offline opportunities um, up to the daily you know basis and also to connect with you no matter where they're living and so that's what I mean by it's more leveraged because there's just so much more opportunity and you can make progress faster that way um, so I just um, want to say that I'm guessing if you're coming to this question of publishing a general nonfiction book, you have experience, expertise, authority in your subject area, and to know to notice what platform have you already been given, even if it's a platform that you no longer hold, but you had it and it was legitimate and it made a difference. And that is something that demonstrates your authority and credibility um, and that people entrusted you with something, um, but also to open up your um you know, as you're opening up to the reality of the time commitment, also open up to the reality of the platform commitment and that there will be things that you will need to do more intentionally going forward to continue to grow and strengthen that platform that you already have. And, um, 
So I want to say too about this platform piece that this um, this is really about taking that long-term view of your life. It's about what we talked about in episode two about um, what is your life circling around? What is your vocation heading toward or has been heading toward? Um, is this the direction your life is going? Is this something that you're in a place of being willing to you know, give yourself over to even more and, and more firmly commit to saying, this is what I'm about in this world and this is one way that I'm going to continue to nurture that. Um, And it's not just with the book, but it's about all the things that you might do to cultivate an audience, to serve an audience, really, um, to serve a a group of people that need what, what you have been given to share. And I want to say, too, this can be such a highly fulfilling way to live. I love the clarity that comes for people who step into this process of book pregnancy in general nonfiction, because there's a there's a clarity of life. It's like, yeah, this is really what I'm I'm doing with my life. And this is one more way that that can be expressed. And this is another kind of opening to serve more people. And I just got goosebumps even saying that because it's such it's connected so much to this sense of like, purpose and mission and the life you were you were made to offer or have become the kind of person who could offer a life of giving to others in service like uh yeah the goosebumps they just keep coming um and i just that's so beautiful to watch happen and it's so fulfilling to live into and so i just i i guess i'm hoping that in talking about this platform factor that i'm doing something to kind of bring you back to center and when you might have run away to the side. (laughs) You know, when you hear the word platform, a lot of people flee and they're like, ah, I'm scared of that. And I don't have enough for it. And I feel kind of like less than. I want to, I hope by hearing all, all of these different aspects of platform and ways of thinking about it, that you feel yourself kind of invited back to center and um, welcomed and like given an opportunity to do something really beautiful. Okay, let's move into factor number three when it comes to considering um, publishing, birthing a book into the world. Factor number three is that you have something to say. So we talked about this also in episode two of the podcast, which talked about nine different discernment questions you can ask yourself as you go into um, kind of considering this question of whether you're pregnant with a book. Um, so again, you can find that at bookwifery.com slash podcast and go you know, navigate yourself over to episode number two on the nine discernment questions. Questions one and seven were questions that touched on this you have something to say factor. So in question one and question seven, I talked about the difference between having a general desire to write a book in your lifetime and having something specific to say, something specific that is growing inside of you right now. So this is where that those two questions or that delineation of that question kind of um, kind of really comes into play as one of the key factors you need to consider if you're going to move forward is that you actually do have something specific to say. And here um, I want to cover two things with this. Number one is that it's that what you have is a book worthy idea. And number two, that you have a voice in in to offer to the conversation. So let's break each of those down. The book where the idea is that you are noticing in yourself that there's something inside of you that's becoming more and more specific. You may not be able to name it specifically yet, but you can tell that there's something 
that wants to come out. (laughs) And so this is where we get into like, it's no longer just a general desire to write a book someday to know there's something in there that's actually pushing and wanting to come out. And so it's like pushing against the walls of your chest and against your ribs. And it feels like it's big. And I want to say that, you know, a book worthy idea is something that is bigger than um, maybe a series on a blog could contain. Like you could write, if you feel like you have something pushing inside of you that wants to come out, but you could, you could envision yourself like breaking it down into like seven discrete blog posts, like doing a series on your blog about this topic. And like, that would really cover it for you. This is more than that. This is like, no, I couldn't do it in seven posts. <laughs> I couldn't do it on a weekend retreat. Like there is so much more to be said. I couldn't do it in one talk, one one hour talk or even a three hour workshop. Like I can't, it's like there's so much to this thing that's inside of me. There's all these different angles. Like you could look at it from so many different directions and you could go really deep into it. This is where we're getting upon like something that is book worthy. It's it's something that would require like whole chapters and like subsections of a chapters. And um, it needs to be kind of contained in like many, many pages of things that you have to say about it. And so, so noticing that there's something that's pushing to come out and it feels bigger than the kind of smaller or um, more finite um, opportunities that might be available to you that you could imagine. and that additionally with the book where the idea is this like it's something that you're feeling like a large group of people need to know um, people beyond your immediate community that this is something that a broader base of people would benefit from that that they need to be educated on or need to be helped with that you're seeing like um, a hole in the in the conversation space or in the helping space for a particular group of people. And now that gets us into this, the second kind of element of having something to say, which is voice. So a lot of times when we think about writing and we hear the word voice, we think about like the way you say something like, oh my gosh, that author, they have just such an amazing voice. And like, I think about someone like Anne Lamott immediately comes to mind for this for me, because when I read Anne Lamott's books, whether it's her novels, whether it's her books on, you know, her nonfiction, like um, Bird by Bird or Traveling Mercies, her essays. I think of like her dry humor and like her irreverence, her irreverent reverence. (laughs) She talks about things that have to do with the sacred and yet she does it in such an irreverent way that it like disarms the reader and it makes you laugh and it makes you think. And um, she has a distinct voice. Like when you read her, you feel like you're really reading Anne Lamott. You're not reading someone else. So that's kind of the common way we think about voice when it comes to writing a book. But I want to, again, open you up to a broader understanding of voice. This is something I work on a lot in Bookwifery with my authors and in the different courses that we do. Um, to, to say it, there is a part of writing that is about how you say it. That tends to be more important when it comes to fiction and creative nonfiction, like memoir, um, because there, the reader is looking for an experience of story. Um, when it comes to general nonfiction, voice is a bone in terms of how you say it is like a bonus. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm learning so much from this person. Like they're helping me, but they're also like, I just love the way they talk about their ideas. Like 
they make me laugh. They make me, um, they make me feel like I'm slowing down a little. They help me feel like I can breathe. Like the way that the author says it on the page is an aspect of voice in general nonfiction, but there's this other aspect of voice that is um, really important. And and I would say even possibly more important. Um, I don't know, I I could probably spend some time really kind of (laughs) digging into like, whether they are equally important, or one is more important than the other in general nonfiction. But here's what it is. Voice in general nonfiction is both how you how you say things, but also what you are contributing to a larger conversation in your subject matter area. So there is a conversation happening in the marketplace around different lots of different subjects. And each new addition to that that conversation for a particular subject is offering something a little bit different than what everyone else has already said. And so um, I want to give the example, an example I like to use on this are is books on the Enneagram. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. It is a personality typing system similar to other typing systems like the Myers-Briggs or the StrengthsFinders. Um, Oh my gosh, there's so many different, the DISC profile. Um, The Enneagram is is similar to that, um, but it also kind of it gets at what motivates you. And um, there's often a spiritual component to it. Um, a lot of people who study the Enneagram or, or really learn about it, they, they love, they feel like it's more holistic than the other personality typing systems. Um, but anyways, it's not necessary for me to like, get into the Enneagram with you. Um, what I want to say about it is that there are so many books on the Enneagram in the market. Um, there's books that kind of give you an introduction to the Enneagram, but then there's like books that say, what's the Enneagram from a Christian perspective? Or what's the Enneagram like as it affects people in um, like work, the workplace, or or how it affects people in relationships, or how it affects people in like parenting. Um, there's some Enneagram books out there that have been made into like a cartoon style, like it really like I think it's called the Enneagram. It is called the Enneagram Made Easy, and like every page is a different cartoon drawing that helps you better understand the Enneagram in a really simple way because of the cartoon drawings. Um, and so my my point here is that you have this huge topic, the Enneagram, and you have all these books, but each one is coming at the topic of the Enneagram from a little bit of a different vantage point. It's like, okay, yeah, we're all talking about the Enneagram, but this person over here is talking about the Enneagram in relationships. And this person over here is talking about the Enneagram made easy, like bringing it down to um, any, you know, like almost like a child's understanding. Um, And it's like, voice is about what you are bringing to the conversation that already exists in the market that is unique and needed, like almost like that hole that that I mentioned in the earlier about like, there's this group of people that need to be that are being served or need to be served in a particular subject area. And you're noticing that um, some message that they need to hear is not quite being offered yet. And so you have something to bring to the table related to that topic. Um, that doesn't mean that your topic, your specific topic has never been talked about before, but it's it's important that um, there is a conversation going on already around the subject matter that you're working in, and that if other people are saying the exact same thing that you have to say, like you, your content would overlap, that is where the way you say it becomes more important. <laughs> 
And so there's a lot of books on kind of introducing the Enneagram to go back to that example. Lots of like basic primers on what the Enneagram is and explaining each of the different types and um, helping you understand like what the impact of each number is um, on a person. But when you get to like, okay, I just want a basic understanding of the Enneagram and say like, like there's 10 books here that all do that, then then is when the reader will say, oh, well, which of these like, do I just enjoy more or which one kind of speaks in a way that makes sense to me? And that's where that will go to that, like how you say it really matters, because that the way you say it will speak to certain people more than others or won't speak to some people and other people will. And so but but if you have these 10 books that are a primer on the Enneagram and someone has already kind of gotten that primer and they they understand it, they don't really need to know like to rehash all the kind of basic details, but then they start thinking, you know, I want to know how the Enneagram affects my work life. I want to know how it affects me in my relationships. I want to know how it affects me as a parent and like with my children and what Enneagram number are they? And so that's where like all of these kind of unique takes on the Enneagram or like different contributions to the conversation becomes really important and interesting and fun and deepens the conversation that everybody's having about the Enneagram and like each new way of thinking about it and living it out, it becomes really helpful. And so, um, yeah, voice is two different things. It's your contribution to an existing conversation in a subject area and like what you're doing, what you have to say that's a little bit different than what's already been said, um, or how you say it in a way that's different than has been said and is, is offering kind of a, um, a new experience of existing content. That makes sense. <laughs> okay, now we're moving into the last factor to consider if you're going to birth a book, and that is the realities of publishing. So you don't have to know right out of the gate whether you're planning to be um, pursuing the traditional publishing path with a publishing house that already exists, or whether you're going to carve the path of self-publishing for yourself. You don't need to know that at the beginning, but at some point you will need to make a decision about that because it affects how you move forward, whether you're going to um, need to query outside people about whether they would be willing to partner with you on your book and invest in your book and help bring it to life, or whether you are going to assemble a team of editor, designer, um, printer, all of that yourself and bring it to life, you know, kind of leading a team of people that you've assembled for yourself. So at some point you will need to decide that. But what I want to talk about in this last factor is kind of the realities of publishing that apply to either path. You know, whether you go traditional publishing or you go self-publishing, the realities of publishing are often are, are kind of boiled down to some very um, true factors, things that are true for both paths. And so that's what I want to talk about here. The first is um, having that book-worthy idea that what you have to say is something that could fill the length of a book. And that is going to matter whether you pursue a traditional publisher or you self-publish. You know, is what you have to say long enough to actually warrant a book being published? So whether someone else is investing in the cost of bringing it to life or you are investing in the cost of bringing it to life, is the heft of a book there? So the book is re- is like a real live idea. Um, Number two is that you have a unique contribution to an existing conversation. This is what we just talked about. Having something to contribute 
to something that already exists. So publishers are really interested in this because they want to know that there is already a a large group of people out in the world that cares about this subject matter. It proves that there will be people who might want to buy this other book that's being added into the mix on that subject. Um, So there's an existing conversation already happening out there that allows the publisher to know, okay, people care about this topic. And then, but but they want to have that unique angle, whether it's like adding in another way of thinking about that topic that hasn't been said, or it's it's bringing a kind of different flavor of voice to think, you know, how it's being talked about that would appeal to a group of people that want to be learning about that topic. So the publisher cares about that because the traditional publisher cares about that because it ensures that the book has the chance of life in the world. And they, you know, it's a big investment for them to to bring a book into their catalog. And so they want to know that that, that investment is going to pay off for them in some way. And so, but I would say that this is important if you go the path of self-publishing as well. Um, you are, if you're self-publishing, you are funding the endeavor yourself. You're investing thousands upon thousands of dollars to do it ultimately in the end. And so you would not want to make that kind of financial investment in a book that has no existing audience out there, like people are not demonstrating an interest in this topic. Um, it's it's not something people are talking about or thinking about in, as a subject area. Um, if that didn't exist, you might pause on whether it was worth investing, you know, $10,000 possibly in, in something like this. Um, so you would want to know that there is an existing conversation happening around your subject area. And you would also want to be thinking about like, again, is this a wise business financial investment for you? Like, is what I'm looking to bring out into the world as I pay for this to happen, um, something that's offering something new? Um, Is it going to help the people that are interested in the subject in some new way, either by having a kind of unique voice, like way of saying it, or by offering another angle on it that other people aren't aware of? So being aware of that factor is important to both traditional or self-publishing. And then third um, is the the reality of publishing is that in general nonfiction is that you need to have the authority to write the book. Um, this is connected to that idea of trust that people have in you have that that people have demonstrated they have in you. Um, so when you think about strolling into a bookstore, I know in the last episode I invited you to do that quite a bit too, or in the first episode of the podcast I invited you to do that too. Strolling into a bookstore, you're looking at general nonfiction, some category. Uh, let's just say it's business. Um, you go to the business section. You're pulling a book off the shelf. You're looking at different, or you're looking at different titles, and you're like, okay, I'm finding some titles that are interesting to me. You pull them off the shelf. At some point, you're gonna care about who wrote that book. You're gonna care about their experience. You're gonna care about what they've done in their life to demonstrate that they know something about this topic. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so, a, a publisher cares about your authority to write on your topic because ultimately, the reader is gonna care about that. The reader is the one who's ultimately going to read the book to get the help from it that the book is promising to give them. And the reader needs to feel like they can trust the person that has written that content that they're going to digest to learn the thing that they're wanting to learn. And so you need to have authority to write on your subject. So whether that is your training, your background, your you know vocational experience, um, different places where you've been invited to speak or teach or lead retreats, like all of that platform stuff becomes important there. Um, there's also the, um, 
the reality that this is important to you if you are self-publishing as well. Um, and so, because again, it, it actually, it, <laughs> in some ways, you might feel it even more acutely if you are self-publishing because you are deciding by self-publishing that you are not going to have a partner, a publishing partner that is helping you to market and sell the books. You are going it alone. And so you, I mean, you may assemble a team of people that help you launch the book and do all of that, but it's ultimately kind of all on your shoulders to do everything for the book to help it live in the world. And so you know, having the authority to write the book and having a platform of people that trust you and want to hear from you. This is where like, not just the offline, but also the online commitment um, that you've made to your platform building is really becomes even more essential because you are relying completely on the, the audiences that you have cultivated in your offline and your online space to buy the book. And so um, those offline and online audiences are people who have demonstrated that they trust you and they want to know what you, they want to follow you. They want to come hear what you have to say. They want to hear from you. Um, they enjoy you or trust you uh, in some way. And they want, they care about what you're talking about and they want you to tell them more. And so having cultivated the authority that demonstrates people trust you and doing what you do in your offline and online spaces to cultivate an audience becomes important to you in self-publishing as well. And so I hope you see here that like the publishing path is really ultimately the same for the author, no matter whether they go traditional or self-publishing. I mean, the work that you do and the amount of people that you work with and all of that is different, but, and the financial investment is definitely different depending on which path you go. But the, at the heart of it, like what is necessary to make it go, to make it be successful, potentially successful, is similar either way. You need to have a book-worthy idea. You need to have a unique contribution to a conversation that's already happening in the world. And you need to have uh, the authority, you need to have demonstrated authority to write the book and have done some kind of cult platform and audience cultivation efforts. Ooh, so we covered quite a bit of ground in this episode, these four factors. I'll just name them again. The first factor was time. The second factor was platform. The third factor was you have something to say. And the fourth factor was the realities of publishing. And I hope you found this helpful in continuing to, to discern your pathway forward. Taking this as a follow-on from episode number two with the nine discernment questions that help you kind of hold your own personal discernment, these kind of outside factors um, or outside realities can can further help you discern um, whether that pregnancy stick for you is coming back positive or negative. And I look forward, I would love to hear if, if this is something that you've discerned and whether that is a positive or negative. And either way, I would love to know like what helped you know that this was or was not an invitation for you right now in your life. Or if it's a maybe and you're still holding questions, I'd love to hear that too. And if there's ways that I can continue to support you with your questions that, that are still kind of hanging out there in your discernment, let me know. Um, you can co you can connect with me on Instagram. That's my very favorite social platform. I am Christiane underscore bookwifery on Instagram. Um, you can also find me at bookwifery.com. You can sign up for my birth notes and um, which are kind of my email newsletter. And that's another way that you can be connected to me via email. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear how is your discernment going? Is it a yes? Is it a no? Is it a maybe? What are the factors that are contributing to that for you? Blessings on your continued discernment.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bookwifery podcast. Show notes for each episode can be found at bookwifery.com slash podcast. I'd love to connect with you beyond the show. You can subscribe to my birth notes newsletter at bookwifery.com slash notes, where I share further details behind each week's episode, plus updates on all things bookwifery. My favorite place to hang out online is Instagram. You can find me at Christiane underscore bookwifery or by searching bookwifery in the explore tab. And lastly, don't you just love this music? It's called Lights Dissolve and is produced by a musician named Elliot Middleton. Thanks again for listening.